Bill doesn't know this, but he's probably going to be responsible for me living a couple more years because he put me on a schedule of, of swimming for exercise. That was all Bill. So, but if you hear I've drowned, that's also Bill's, <laughs> Bill's fault. <laughs> oh, I just couldn't give it to you, could I? I always had to take, take a little bit back. Um, before we get started, here's a sidebar. The, before this class, uh, last weekend, um, there was a, supposed to be a class on intimacy with Jesus, and the guy who was teaching it got a kidney stone. So they called me and they said, could you come you know, early and do this class? And I'd never taught anything quite like that, and, I, and so I had to think about, okay, intimacy with Jesus. And I think the class was something maybe that had to do with you know, meditation and, and uh, journaling or something like that, which... I said, okay, I can talk about him as a person because that's how you become intimate with somebody. So my plan was we looked at different stories from the life of Jesus from all the gospels that were intimate, where he was talking to one other person. Most of those stories are in John, by the way. Uh, and what we did was we collected adjectives. So I want to read to you the, our list of adjectives. Uh, I'll first, let me first read you the, the adjectives that the gospels use. Okay? You, you understand what I'm doing? Okay. Matthew says he's astonished and he's compassionate. Mark has more adjectives than any, other, any of the other gospels, which we know, right? We know because Jesus is emotional in Mark. He's angry, he's stern, he's strict, he marveled, he's plain spoken, he's indignant, he's grieving. Luke, he's amazed, he's resolute, he's anguishing, he's full of joy. John only has four adjectives, all that big book of John. And one of those is repeated, so I've just got three. He's tired, he's deeply moved, and he's troubled. Okay, but these were our, our list of adjectives. I'm not going to read them all because I've counted there are 72. He's out of the box. He's unexpected. He's generous. He's understanding. He's proclaiming as an adjective. He's responsive. He's flexible. He's obedient. He's congenial. He's creative, he's merciful, he's tender, he's accepting, he's realistic, he's understanding, he's perceptive, he's safe. He's irrepressibly loving. He's self-aware, he's personal, he's countercultural. he's diplomatic, at least once, maybe, or twice. <laughs> he's authoritative, he's intriguing, he's misunderstood, he's inclusive. He's patient, he's unconventional, he's radical, he's restorative, he's piercing, he's relational, he's persistent. He won't accept excuses. He's persistent, he's confrontation, confrontational, he's forgiving, he's brokenhearted, he's relentless, he's empathetic, he's prophetic, he's life-saving, he's convicting, he's clever, he's calm, he's provocative, He's divisive, he's unpredictable, he's adoptive, adaptive, adaptive. Um, he's friendly, he's timely, and he's upright. It took us three days to come up with all those. And then that's a neat exercise. So I encourage you, get, put a piece of paper in the back of your Bible and as you're reading through the Gospels, when you see one of those stories, if you've got an adjective, because there's just something, there's a, the cumul cumulative weight of those adjectives um, just, it, it does something. And before I get started, I, I want to thank you for uh, listening. It's so, 
it's so much to listen to, and I, I appreciate that. And if, if it's true that the best way to show someone you love them is to listen to them, you've loved me well this week, and I don't take that for granted. I really appreciate it. And all the encouragement, and uh, it's just been, it's been a really good time for me. I'll just tell you this. We moved out of our house. We lived in a, in a house um, for 35 years in, in the middle of a big patch of woods, and it was really an idyllic, idyllic place. We raised our children there. And uh, six, eight months ago, we moved, we sold it, and we moved into an apartment. And it was a big change for me. And um, I have good days and bad days. Um, I'm taking care of my daughter's dogs. (laughs) And in an apartment complex, that means you pick up their poop. I start my day picking up the poop of two big dogs. So anyway, uh, so I've been six, eight months living in, in kind of fighting being grumpy, and, and uh, I haven't been on the road much. I've been home riding and, and uh, being a man-wife, which I don't mind being at all, but um, that means I do all the cooking and cleaning. But um, I had really lost sight of who, of who I was in a lot of ways and what I was called to do, and you come back to the cove, and you exercise your gift, and you go, oh, okay, I can, this is what I do, okay, this is what I do. I'm not just a dog walker who, you know. <laughs> so all that is to say, thank you. Because um, I, I have benefited, you don't realize this, but I've benefited more probably than any of you by being here. And it's been really good for me. And uh, I, so I don't take that for granted. Um, so there, there's that. So I think we, we left off in verse 53, is that right? Yeah. We had the nude scene. And then we have... <laughs> <laughs> when I teach high schoolers, I'll say, you know, read, read the Gospels, except Mark. Don't read Mark. There's nudity in it. And you hear the pages go, shoop, 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 shoop. <laughs> I got them. I get them that way. Okay. Jesus before the Sanhedrin. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. So this is the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court. Just think Supreme Court, because that's what it is. In fact, I think our Supreme Court pro- probably came from this. Okay? So this is the Sanhedrin. Peter followed at a distance. And remember I showed you the, the picture of that one staircase that we think is almost certainly the one Jesus walked up? He walked up that staircase to go to this meeting. Okay? He goes up to, first he's held it, only John lets us know this. John tells he's held at Annas' house until they can be gathered, and then they have their thing at Caiaphas's. okay? Um, and Peter follows uh, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself, and John gives us more detail. John lets us know that he went in first. John, 14, 13, 14 years old, he's no threat, so they let him in, uh, Peter tries to get in, and they won't let him in. And so John talks to the girl, girl at the gate and says, he, oh, it's okay, he's with me, and John gets him in. That detail is in there. Um, and, and we're going to see a little fingerprint of that uh, in, this, in Mark's telling of it, proving the point that the Bible is accurate when it doesn't know it's being accurate. It lines up when it doesn't know it's lining up. So, uh, so Peter follows at a distance. He goes right into the courtyard. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could not find any. 
Many testified falsely against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Okay, so they got a problem. We've got him now, and, and uh, now we, there's a bump in the road. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another not made by man. Now that's a misunderstanding based on John 2 and the first destruction of the temple, right? Jesus says, tear this temple down and I'll build it again in three days, meaning they're being raised from the dead. And that's uh, John 2, 19. Isn't it interesting that one of the first public things he did, it, that's still hounding him, something that he said, they remembered that. And that comes up, at least a twisted form of what he said comes up. Um, yet even then, their testimonies didn't agree. It's hard to make lies. When everybody's lying, kind of hard to make that line up, right? Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. What is the point? During most of his trials, there, there are, there's a, a Jewish trial that has three parts, and there's a Roman trial that has three parts. And during most of those trials, he keeps his mouth shut. Only rarely, rarely does he open his mouth, and that's usually to Pilate. He says a couple things to Pilate, but there's just no point. You know, as a lamb before her shears is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. That was prophesied of, okay? Okay. Um, Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Let's cut right to the chaste. He says, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow. It doesn't get any clearer than that, right? No messianic secret here. No messianic secret here. The high priest tore his clothes. Why? Because he believed he heard blasphemy. And you tear your clothes. You make a rip. Um, why do we need any more witnesses? Uh, you've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? So we don't have to line up the law of the lies and make this all agree. He, we've got him. You know, we all just heard what he said. So uh, we've got him. He put his neck in the noose. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. Uh, they blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. Now the Jews will mock Jesus in a uniquely Jewish way and the Romans will not mock Jesus in a uniquely Roman way. This is uniquely Jewish. What they're doing is they're, uh, they're, they blindfold him and they hit him and they say, okay, who hit you? You've got a name who's hit you. And the background of this is in the, uh, the Talmud in a tractate, a chapter of the, Talmud, of the Talmud called the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin 93b, if you're going to look it up. And it says the Messiah would not judge by, uh, he would judge by smell without the need of sight. So the Messiah won't judge by what he sees. The Messiah will judge by what he smells. Okay. It's based on Isaiah 11, uh, two through four. Go look it up and figure it out. I mean, it's kind of bizarre and obscure, but that's, that's the world of the Mishnah and the Talmud. So the point is, they're uniquely, they're mocking him in a uniquely uh, Jewish way. The Romans will, will mock him by means of a game that they play called king, and, and we'll, see that. we'll see that in a minute. Um, 
so Jesus is, is, is faithfully testifying in front of these people who are beating him and spitting on him. Um, while Peter is below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by when she saw him, uh, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him and listened closely. You also were with the Nazarene. What's also mean? John's there. You're also one of his disciples. So John, John's not hiding. Everybody knows he's a follower of Jesus. So you also were with the Nazarene. So she, she thinks she recognizes him. Um, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. He said, and he went into the entryway. So he moved away from her. Going to go somewhere else. He's, he's kind of hiding. John isn't hiding. When the servant girl saw him there, I think the same servant girl that let him in in the first place, she said again to those standing around, this fellow's one of them. And he denied it. After a little while, and I think in, in, in the others of the Gospels, it's like 30 minutes. They, they give a more definite time. But a little block of time later, uh, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean. How do they know he's a Galilean? The way he talks. He's got an accent. Um, Galilee is often mentioned in the Talmud. Galileans are often mentioned in the Talmud because of their distinctive accent. There are certain syllables that Peter can't pronounce. And it makes him sound uneducated. And Jesus talks the same way. He has a Galilean accent. Some of us here have accents that make us sound uneducated. So our hearts resonate with our Galilean brothers, you know. So surely you're one of them for your Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, this, moment, this is one of the coolest moments in Luke twenty two sixty one. At this very moment, it's the most dramatic. I talked to someone who's in drama. It's the most dramatic moment in Luke. Uh, when Peter denies him the third time, he looks over and Jesus is looking at him. You know this moment? Yeah. Jesus is looking at him across the courtyard and a very particular word is used uh, about the way Jesus is looking at Peter. It's the Greek word emblepo, kind of an ugly word, emblepo. Uh, it's used, this word is used to describe the way Jesus looks at Peter. John uses it the very first time they lay eyes on each other. Peter, Jesus looks at Peter, and I translate it gaze, because emblepo is to see someone with your mind, is to look intently at someone. So the first time they lay eyes on each other, Jesus is just kind of looking at him. You know, he's gazing at him. And now across the courtyard, as Peter denies him the third time, which is exactly what Jesus said he would do, right? Peter, I guess he senses somebody's looking at him. He looks around and Jesus is looking right at him. Now my question to you is, what do you think is the, is the expression? What's the nature of that look? If it was me, I told you you do that, you jerk. I told you you do that. Now that and that's how you do that's how you look too. I don't think that's the look on Jesus' face because his look breaks Peter. I think it's forgiving. I think he's looking at him in a forgiving way, or at least in at least at least in a kind way. And Peter it, that look is what makes Peter break down and weep. That's what makes him cry. It's Jesus looking at him. What a, I mean, you would never write it that way if you're writing a movie, right? You would never write it that way. People would never believe it. Uh, just too, I don't know, too perfect. 
But uh, yeah, he's looking over there and Jesus, uh, Pete, Jesus is looking uh, directly at him. That's Luke twenty two sixty one. 61. <clears throat> Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. What's the difference? The two people betrayed Jesus, right? Judas and Peter betrayed him or denied him. Um, what's the difference Peter wept. Judas tried to fix it. Because Judas repented too, didn't he? He gave the money back. He tried to fix it. See, Peter weeps. <laughs> and who survives? And who goes on to be the person that God uses? So sometimes you need to stop trying to fix things. The things you've messed up, right? Especially the people you've messed up because people are unfixable. That's why we have to be redeemed. But uh, the one who survived and went on to be a useful person is, uh, is the one who wept. So weeping is a good thing. I don't even wipe tears away anymore. It's my policy. I just let them do their thing. Okay, very early, chapter 15, very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, and the teacher of the law. Get it? That's the three. That's the big three. And the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. Now, it's against Jewish law for them to meet at night. They already did that. So what they do is they, they have a morning meeting, kind of a kangaroo court to ratify the decision. We have, we have three, three Jewish trials, or three-part trials, three-part three, three Roman trial. The first Jewish trial, he goes to Annas, where they hold him. They have this illegal meeting at night with Caiaphas, where they decide on the charge. And then they meet formally in the morning, three parts to the Jewish part. The Roman one's really easy. He goes to Pilate, he goes to um, Herod? Herod, yeah. Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. That's, that's much easier. Okay. So very early in the morning, the chief priest, teacher of the law, uh, the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So in your imagination, you keep in mind, his hands are, his, he's tied up. His hands are tied up the whole time. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Now Pilate is such an interesting person. And Mark is not terribly interested in him. There are a lot of, not a lot of uh, details about him. It's good to kind of go through the other Gospels and to get your, particularly Luke, and get your, your, uh, your picture of Pilate. Uh, the most important thing about Pilate uh, we get from Acts, is it 3, Peter's sermon? Yeah, Acts 3.13. When Peter preaches a sermon, his reference to Pilate, he says, Pilate had decided to let Jesus go. So an eyewitness who was there you know, because he's blaming the Jews. You, why did you do this? Because Pilate wanted to let him go. So th I think that's the most important, because sometimes you can't, you hear people talk about Pilate and he comes across as this conflicted person who really didn't wanna, want, want to, you know, to deal with it. He wants to let Jesus go, you know. And his wife had a dream, right? His wife says, had nothing to do with that innocent man. So Pilate's getting pressure from all sorts of directions. Um, and um, anyway, Pilate, Pilate's a, and we know a lot about Pilate, actually. Um, he's, uh, let me, sidebar, quick sidebar on Pilate. This is one of the undercurrents that, uh, that uh, helps you to understand Pilate. Um, uh, Pilate had received his, um, his um, a position uh, because of the patronage of, I can't just, my, his, his name just, um, just escaped me, but there, there was a very powerful Roman 
person who, who, if I could remember his name, you would all recognize it. It'll come to me. Um, Sejanus. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're a genius. Okay. Elias. Okay. This is the most important name in the life of Jesus that's not in the gospel. Learn this name. Sejanus. S-E-J-A-N-U-S. Elias Sejanus. Sejanus was a very powerful man. Very close to the emperor, right? Tiberius, very close. He got Pilate his job. He was a, a, pilot, he was a patron of Pilate and got him his position in, in, uh, as uh, the prefect, the Roman military governor uh, uh, in Judea. Well, sometime before this, they found out that Sejanus was fomenting a rebellion. He was going to take over, Okay. And it was exposed, and he was, he was executed. Okay, now you're Pilate. Say, cipher all that into Pilate's motivations. Okay, the guy who got him his job was a traitor and has been executed. So when you come up with a situation where someone might say, you know, something like, you're no friend to Caesar, do you feel, you feel, are you feeling Pilate? <laughs> and what you'll see, I don't think it happens in John. I mean, in Mark, I think it's in John. But what happens is he keeps saying, I'm going to let him go. I'm going to, I'll have him flogged and then I'll let him go. Or, you know, he goes through all these motions to try to let Jesus go. And then what happens, someone from the back of the crowd shouts, if you let this man go, you are no friend to Caesar. And Pilate goes, Sejanus. And he turns around and he hands Jesus over. That, that shout from the crowd is what, does it, it, what turns it around for Pilate. It's very, very interesting. So back, but we know a lot about Pilate. We know a lot about, in fact, we've, we actually found an inscription in, in, uh, in Caesarea that has his name on it. So, um, so Pilate comes right out, the, right out of the box. And also what you need to know is Jesus is a momentary blip on his screen. He's an irritation. Pilate has a day of what was referred to as organized leisure. He has a day of organized leisure in front of him. He's going to go get him. He's going to go to the sauna. You know, he's going to have a slave, give him a rub down. He might exercise a little bit. Then he's going to, he'll go to a banquet, an organized day of leisure. So he gets all of his work done very early in the morning. And the Jews know if we're going to do this today, we got to get him to we got to get Jesus to Pilate very early. And so from another uh, perspective, Jesus is just the guy that's keeping him from going, having a massage and going to the baths, right? I'm going to get this guy out of my hair. He didn't care about all this Jewish mumbo jumbo, right? Messiah, what does he care? So, and you see that in Pilate. He's trying to get under their skins. So here comes Jesus to Pilate. They, uh, they bind Jesus and they, lead him, they uh, hand him over to Pilate. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it's as you say, Jesus replied. Wow. Pilate goes, man, I couldn't believe he'd, <laughs> couldn't believe he'd just say it. Uh, the chief priests accused him of many things, and we have this list from Luke 23. They accused him of three things. This is uh, the first thing they accused Jesus of was inciting riots. Okay, and, and you'll notice the Jews won't accuse him of of anti-Jewish, of Jewish things. They accuse him of doing things that the Romans don't like, right? So breaking the peace, that's the Pax Romana, that's number one. 
So the, right out of the box, they say he's inciting riots because so, they know that's going to get him in trouble. Uh, number two, they say he spoke against Caesar. That's not good, right? And uh, three, they say he had royal potential. What's my word? Pretensions, yeah. He thought he was a king. So it has nothing to do with blasphemy. They know the Romans don't care about blasphemy, right? All, all the stuff that they're, they've accused him of and convicted him of, that doesn't come up in the Roman trial because they know the Romans couldn't care less about those things. See how it works? Yeah, it's not complicated. <clears throat> so are you the king, king of the Jews? Yep. And so the, the chief priests are standing there and they accuse him of many things. Uh, in Acts 6-7, uh, many of these priests actually ended up being followers of Jesus. That's Acts 6-7. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? So he answers Pilate, but he doesn't answer the charges from the, the chief priests. Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. You know, defend yourself, right? Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And if you read lots of commentaries, especially the more liberal ones, they will say that Mark just made this up, that there's no evidence of this anywhere. Uh, and the truth is, th there isn't evidence of anybody else doing it. And the conclusion is, this was something Pilate would do to appease the Jews. So when there was a feast, he let a Jewish prisoner go. Uh, so when you read things like that, don't let that shake you. So um, it was a custom at the feast, Pilate's custom, um, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas, which means son of the father. Um, yeah, ironic, isn't it? A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrection who had committed murder. He was a convicted murderer. He convicted murder uh, in the uprising. So that's your choice. A murderer and the author of life. You know, who are you going to choose? Who does the mob choose, right? The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what, here, see, it, what he usually did. So it's a thing that Pilate does. Do you want uh, me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. So Pilate knows this is all a setup. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead, the crowd. Now, what have you heard preached a million times? The same people who shouted Hosanna a few days later are shouting that Jesus be crucified. Absolutely false. Absolutely false. This, this is the crowd in, from Jerusalem that the high priest has control over. He can, he can lean on these people to, to, to do whatever he wants them to do. So it's the rabble. It's the rabble. Okay, so that, that's been overpreached. That probably doesn't work. So, um, where am I? Uh, yeah, what shall, what shall I do then uh, with the one you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? See, Pilate, he went, this is not fair. Uh, Acts 13, 13, that's where uh, Peter says Pilate had decided to let him go. What crime has he committed? They shouted all the louder, crucify him, because there's no crime he committed. They can't shout back any crime. And the word, um, the cross has been preserved for, for us in the word excruciating. 
The root word of the word excruciating is cruxus, cross. And crucifixion was an old, uh, all the way back to the Persians. Uh, Initially, uh, what they would do, they would crucify you when you're dead. On the battlefield, they would take a pole and, you know, impale you on a pole and, and, and you'd be lifted up on a pole. It was the Romans who thought, let's do this to living people, right? And so the Romans sort of innovated and came up with this idea that we're going to crucify people while they're alive. And this was uh, just a part of everyday life in, in Judea. Uh, in, this, in the town of Sepphoris, when Jesus was only two or three years old, uh, 6,000 people were crucified. And that, I'm, I'm, I'm integrating into, that, in, into my understanding of Jesus that that's the world he grows up, up in. It's more like Syria today, you know, where there are these atrocities. There were atrocities being, uh, being uh, performed all around Jesus growing up. So PTSD, right? You know, he's, there's this incredible world he's grown up in. Uh, and he see, he's seen people crucified. The, the, uh, one of the Roman historians, I think it was Pliny, Pliny said the record was eight days. Someone lasted eight days on a cross because it was designed to last as long as they could possibly make it last. Um, we have one piece of physical evidence of crucifixion. It's in the uh, Israeli museum. It's an ankle bone with a nail through it. So it was nailed through sideways. In the Jesus movement days, we always used to argue about crucifixion, that, oh, no, it wasn't the cross beam that was already there. Oh, it was, he was nailed this way, wasn't nailed that way. The truth is, they crucified people all sorts of ways. Um, uh, Cicero, the great uh, writer, said he had seen people crucified in every attitude, even upside down. So it's kind of part of the joke. It's the way you crucify people. But the way crucifixion works is your, your ankles or your feet are nailed and your hands are nailed, and there's usually this little saddle that's sloped down that you can kind of rest your, you know, your back, your backside on, but it's it's sloped down. And this is what crucifixion is: you push up on the nail in your feet to breathe as long as you can stand the pain, and then you collapse on the nails in your hands, and you do that as long as you can go without air, because when you're like this, you can't breathe. So it's kind of a dance, almost, of pushing up and breathing and falling back down. And um, yeah. And so you'll notice that all the statements from the cross are short, gasping phrases. Because in order for Jesus to say what he's going to say, he has to push up on the nails in his feet and get a breath and say something and then collapse back down. But that's, that's the image of, of, of crucifixion. Um, <clears throat> so the, the crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released uh, Barnabas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. I've got a note. Listen, let me look something real quick. Page 249. Well, it can't be this book because it doesn't have 249 pages in it. So good. <laughs> He had Jesus flogged and handed him uh, over to be crucified. So now he's in Roman, in Roman soldiers' hands. Now he's in the soldiers' hands. Yes? How did this dialogue get in the Bible? Was Peter there to witness the dialogue between... That's a great question, Bill. Bill says, 
where'd this dialogue come from? How, you know, how do we know this? And the, it's an open air court. Maybe somebody hears um, one of the soldiers who um, was responsible for crucifying Jesus actually became a believer. Could have come from him. So there's a couple of places uh, it could have come from. Now, the, we know, we have a really good idea where the, the, the discussions from Herod, kind of that inside world, because we know that one of the women that followed Jesus was the wife of one of Herod's officials. So we have an insider that someone like Luke can, 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 uh, can um, interrogate. I don't know. But... Uh, so the truth is, Bill, we just don't know, but the, you know, there are ways, you know, there are ways. Now a liberal commentary would say, well, Mark just made this up, but you know, we're, we're not going to go there, right? We, we, we are all here because we have presuppositions and our, that we hold by faith. And my presupposition is this is true and it's God's word and it's perfect. So this isn't made up by somebody. And, and if there seems to be a conflict, it's because I don't understand enough and so many things that for so many years liberal scholars said were conflict and used to beat us up with, we keep finding out that those, the truth about all those things. And we don't need to rub it in their noses in it, but not that that's not an awful lot of fun when you get a chance to do it. But, okay. But the, the, the short answer is we're not really sure, but there, were, there, there are numerous places it could have come from. But I, I see what you're, you know, what you're uh, uh, asking Okay, the soldiers. Um, the soldiers led Jesus away to the palace that is the praetorium. That's where the praetor is, the praetorium, the governors. Uh, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. So they're all gonna get in on this. This is the kind of thing they enjoy doing. They put a purple robe um, and Matthew 27 lets us know it's, a, it's one of the soldiers' coat. And you have a purple robe so it doesn't show blood if you're cutting in battle, okay? So they put a purple robe on him and wove a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Everybody's spitting on him. Falling down on their knees, they worshiped him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. And, and what people, some pretty... I think reliable people have come up with is they're actually playing a game with Jesus. We talked about this already, didn't we? Yeah, okay, so I don't need to repeat that. They're playing a game with Jesus. Um, uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that the route to the crucifixion is all, always follows the most pu public path to intimidate the people. So we, we have to realize when they take him out of town, it's the, it's the most public way so that everybody, because you're making, a, it's an object lesson, right? So a, cert, uh, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Interesting. The readers of this document know Alexander and Rufus. Well, guess what? Rufus uh, is referred to in Romans 16. Ha! Huh. How cool is that? And Alexander is, uh, is referred to, well, I'm trying to read my note. Rufus is a member of the church at Rome to whom Mark is writing. Acts 19.33 uh, refers to Alexander. So this guy 
who helps carry the cross, his son is part of the church in Rome. And I'm not making that up. How cool is that, y'all? Okay, so a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, who you all know, right? They may be in the congregation. Was passing by on his way in from the country. Uh, they forced him to carry the cross. And this is Roman, this is Roman law. It's called the Roman, the Roman law of impressment. It's in the Julian Code. And the law says, I as a Roman soldier, I can make you carry any burden one mile. And I'm carrying all my junk, you know, my all the stuff that soldiers have to carry. And you're a peasant. I say, hey, come over, come over here. Uh, here, take this. You got to carry it a mile. What did Jesus say? Carry it two miles. Carry it two miles. So Simon is impressed. Uh, the Roman law of impressment. He is impressed to carry the cross. The cross beam, probably. The cross beam. They've already got the scaffold set up and they put the beam up on it. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The Hebrew word for skull is Golgoloth. So that's where that comes from. Calvaria. The Latin word for skull is Calvaria. So that's where Calvary comes from. Okay? Then they'd offered, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. Now we know about this too. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud and the Sanhedrin, same tractate, 43a, refers to a stupefying drink that was offered to prisoners by the righteous women of, of uh, Jerusalem. Because uh, myrrh is a uh, narcotic. So you take some wine, you put some myrrh in it, and you offer it to prisoners as an act of compassion. Okay? Uh, at another point, Jesus has offered wine with gall in it. Gall is poison. Someone tries to poison him on the way. He doesn't drink that. I think he tastes it and spits it out. I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure about that. But this is, uh, this is wine with myrrh. Um, where am I? Yeah, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why? He's not going to have his senses dulled by some narcotic, right? And, and this is how all of the Gospels ex, uh, express or describe the crucifixion. Here it is. And they crucified him. No details. And then they nailed his feet and they nailed his hand. That is not anywhere in the Gospels, in the crucifixion, the detail of him being nailed to the cross. Not in there. After the resurrection, he shows them the, the marks of the nails. So we know, yes, he was nailed to the cross. But in the descriptions of the crucifixion, it always just read, and there they crucified him. Because that Mark knows that's all he's got to say, Right? These people know about crucifixion. They see it every day. They see it every day. So, and there, or, and, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see who would get them. We know from John, 14, or John 19, 23, that they divide his clothes up into four shares. And that lets us know that four soldiers were detached. The detachment was four soldiers to crucify him. Four people crucified him. They didn't need a big detachment anymore, Right? Just four people, because no one's going to save him. They know that. So four, four soldiers uh, are, are uh, crucifying him. Um, Psalm twenty two nineteen. they divided my clothes. This, every little detail of this crucifixion is prophesied of. Every minute detail is, uh, is prophesied of. <clears throat> it was the third 
hour when they crucified him. And that's, Mark is referring to a period of time, not just one hour. It, it was this part of the day uh, that he was crucified. Let me read my note. Jesus was nailed to the cross a little after midday. Uh, that's John nineteen fourteen, and died at three. This all took place in the third division of the day. And that's, what, that's Mark. That's how he's reckoning time. The third part of the day is when Jesus was crucified. Okay. Um, it was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now this is called the titulus, T-I-T-U-L-U-S. And all the criminals, this is part of crucifying people. You have a, a white gypsum board with the charge on it. And all the gospels uh, record this ch charge slightly differently. Uh, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. This is the one who said he was the king of the Jews. And the, the one phrase they all have in common is king of the Jews. So it's, th there's no charge because there's no charge they could have put. So on this white gypsum board that's hanging around his neck, it just says, according to Mark, it says, it just says king of the Jews. They crucified him. Uh, they crucified two robbers with him, which is also a prophesied part of prophecy. Um, one on his uh, right and one on his left. So now you can picture that in your mind. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Um, The contents of these taunts indicates they came from members of the Sanhedrin. The first indicates that they were at the secret um, trial. The second indicates a rabbinic concept. Um, come down from the cross and save yourself. Okay. Just, I'm, at this point, I'm just reading my notes. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saves others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel... Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And there's the, a little key there. In Peter, it's about believing before you see. These people have to see and believe. You got to prove it to me. And of course, if he came down from the cross, would they believed? No. People who demand miracles never believe them when they come anyway. So these people are the, I've got to see to believe people. But the people, the followers that Jesus is looking for, people like Bartimaeus, are, are the people who are willing to believe without seeing. Okay, that's what he wants from us. And here comes, here comes the death. The sixth hour, um, yeah, lots of details. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, so, Three, three hours of darkness in the other gospels. Matthew particularly talks about an earthquake and other tombs opening and all sorts of other things happening. But this is Amos uh, 8, 9. The book of Amos describes a darkness that expresses mourning for an only son. That's the darkness. The creed would say at this point, Jesus descends into hell. Uh, what is the suffering for sin? Separation from God, basically. That's, what, that's the effect, that's, that's the payment that has to be made and that's what Jesus experiences for the one time of all eternity. They've been one for all eternity in both directions. This one moment, they're separated. No wonder there was an earthquake, right? It was, it was cosmic. 
There were ripples that went all, 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 the, way out through the, all the way out through the universe. Uh, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice. And once again, when you're being crucified, no one does anything in a loud voice. It's a hoarse whisper. But Jesus cries out, and here we're hearing his voice. He's speaking Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which we all know what that means. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And notice, uh, Abba is gone. Now it's only my God. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, listen, he's calling Elijah. They didn't hear him quite well. One man uh, ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus. Now in John 19, he asked for this. He says, I'm thirsty. And they, they bring this to him. But what you need to know, and I'm not saying this outright, but what you need to know is the only references I can find to sponges in the Roman world are sponges that are used as toilet paper. I'm not saying that's what this is, but I'm insinuating that's what this is, okay? A man filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, and this is not how people die on the cross, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in top, uh, and two from top to bottom. And this curtain is a hand breadth thick. Okay, this, this cloth is this thick. Okay, from the top, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. So guess who tore, guess who tore that? Does that show up in other literature verification? That we have one little, she said, does that show up in other literature? We have a little echo of it in the Talmud. And the Talmud refers to a moment right, right around this time in history when the temple doors opened all by themselves. That's the closest thing we've got. Yeah. You would think that people, tombs being opened and people walking around would have come up on the newspaper somewhere, but, but it didn't, and I can't explain that. Um, so he, cry, he dies with a, lot, a loud cry. The, ter, the, temp, uh, the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. And there's two choices for the curtain. You, you decide which, which you, you know, want. There's the curtain that everyone can see. And that would have been a really good testimony, right? So the way into the temple. But then what most of us think is it's the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place that was torn. And, uh, and so the access into the presence of God is now you know, not a matter of one man once a year, you know, and that only with blood. It's uh, the way to God is now open to all of us, which I, I tend to think that that's, that's what the torn curtain uh, symbolizes. So the temple is it's torn. <coughs> and we know from the other gospel, there, there's lightning, there's, er, er, you know, uh, earthquakes. And then the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, uh, when he heard uh, this cry, he, and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God, and that's our second confession from verse one. We've been, we've been waiting 15 chapters to hear this. We heard it 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. John gives us more detail about this soldier. Uh, this is the soldier who pierced him in the side to make sure he was really dead. And water, you know the story, water and blood comes out. And, and, and if you look closely in the, in the text in John, there's this odd, it's the weirdest little odd statement. It's a little parenthetical statement in John. The person who sees this 
knows it was true and he testifies or something. It's this odd little thing. What's the testimony of that soldier? He's a part of John's community now, okay? So, and that's the one who said, surely this man was the son of God. And as a Roman soldier in Rome, who's the son of God? Yeah, Caesar's the son of God. For saying that, he could be executed. A Roman soldier to say that this guy's the son of God, ooh, he'd be in big trouble. So surely this man uh, was the son of God. Yeah. Some women were watching from the distance. Now, the, the authoritative witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are women. Okay, ladies, once again, my hat's off to you. They weren't seen as reliable witnesses in Judaism, but um, uh, the, 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 people, the only people who see every part of it, they see him die, they see him buried, because they bury him, and they, they go to the tomb. They're the first ones. They're the women. So way to go, ladies. You should be proud of that. Uh, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, and Salome, that's the person who may be uh, John's uh, mom. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So that's very countercultural that he has a group of women, but they are the witnesses. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. This is a special Sabbath because it's also Passover, Okay. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly. Why the word boldly? He is identifying with a known criminal who's been executed. It's like a Supreme Court judge going and claiming, you know, somebody at the morgue of a person who's a criminal. It doesn't look good. He, Joseph only has some stuff to lose from doing this. And we know from the Gospel of John that Nicodemus was also with him. So who, who buries Jesus or who claims the body? Two Pharisees. Two Pharisees. So uh, he went and boldly to, to Pilate and asked for the body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. You know, people can last, you know, usually two to three days as long as eight days. But Jesus has only been, what, how, six hours? Yeah, that's unusual. And so to make sure, what does Pilate do? John 19, he sends someone to break their legs, okay? And that's seen as a, 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 a kind thing to do. So remember I told you before you're, 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 you're suspended by your arms and you can't breathe, right, because of the, and so you push up with your legs to get a breath. Well, when they break your legs, you suffocate, it's a big wooden mallet. They break his legs. Um, when, they, when they go to the, the two people on e Jesus either side, they break their legs. Why? Because they hadn't died yet. When they come to Jesus, they don't break his legs. He'd already died. And one of the stipulations of the offering of the Passover lamb is you don't break any of its, uh, any of its bones. You can take it apart at the joint, but you can't break any of its bones. So every little minute detail is, uh, is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. So, um, so Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus already, had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, you know, little sidebar of the centurion stabbing him in the side, making sure he's dead, um, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph 
brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Uh, And we know from other gospels that no one had ever been laid in this tomb, which means it's fit to be used by a king. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So they're the witnesses. They see his body laid, and he is certainly dead. The Romans know how to make people dead. See, he, doesn't, he hasn't fainted, and he's revived, you know, the way some anti-Christian people say. No, the Romans' specialty is killing people. He's, he's definitely dead. The women see every bit of this. They see him wrapped. They see him put in the tomb. They are the witnesses. When the Sabbath was over, this is why we go to church on Sunday, by the way. <laughs> when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, there she is, brought spices so that they may go to anoint the body of Jesus. This is the last point I want to make, and it's so important. There were zero expectations that Jesus would be raised from the dead. There is not even the slightest hint that anybody had heard what he had said about being raised on the third day. They go to the tomb to anoint a dead body. There's no discussion whether he might have been raised from the dead. And when they see that the tomb is empty, what do they say? Oh, he's been raised from the dead, just like he told us. When they see the tomb's empty, what do they say? Someone stole the body. So very important. Absolutely zero. They're not having hysterical hallucinations, you know, like some people accuse them of, you know, to, that try to discount the Christian message. No. You know, he's, what do you do with a dead body? You anoint it. It's in the tomb. It's going to lay there for a year and rot. And then we're going to take Jesus' bones and we're going to wash them and we're going to put them in a box because that's what we do, right? That's what our people do. So they're on their way. And, and think, just stop and think for a minute. As, as far as any of them are concerned, it's all been for nothing. All those promises, all the beautiful stuff he did, it's over. And yet even in the face of that kind of despair, these faithful women still go and care for his body. That's, that's something. So they wait for the Sabbath to be over and then they go and they're going to anoint his dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they ask each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? I showed you that picture of that tomb. The stone's about this big, it's about that thick. You know, who's going to do it? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. What is that? Right side. That's an eyewitness detail. Sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Imagine the confusion. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. He was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. Go back home. He's going to meet you back home. Just go home. Okay? He's going he's to go ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
that is the ending, original ending of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark ends just as abruptly as it begins. No birth narrative, right? No shepherds, no wise men. No account of the incarnation like we have in John, you know, the Gospel of John. So it, it's not, it's not the, the problem that um, some of the early, early uh, people in the early church, the, the, the people who appended 9 through 20, and we're not even going to look at that. Um, so that, that's, how, that's how, uh, how we're left. Um, I want to give you a charge. I want to give you a charge, if I can find the sheet. And now go and be astonished and be compassionate and be angry at the right things and marvel and grieve and be amazed. Be resolute, be full of joy, be deeply moved, be troubled. Go now and be full of grace, be generous and understanding. Respond to the needs around you, be flexible and obedient and congenial and creative and merciful and tender. Be accepting, be realistic, be understanding, be perceptive, be safe, be irrepressibly loving. Go, be self-aware, be countercultural. be willing to be misunderstood, be inclusive and patient and unconventional and radical and restorative, be relational and persistent, be confrontational when you need to be, most of all, be forgiving. Allow your heart to be broken by the things that break God's heart. Be relentless, be prophetic, be clever, be calm, be provocative, be unpredictable. Go and be all these things because you are the body of Christ. We are his sheliakim. We are his authoritative representatives. Go and love each other well and forgive each other. Go now, love each other well and forgive each other. Go now and love each other well and forgive each other and be his people. Go in peace.